Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to Experts Only Podcast. My name is John Powers, your host, and today we're speaking with Rob Davis, the director of the Center for Pollinators in Energy, part of Fresh Energy uh, up in Minnesota. It's an independent nonprofit organization. We'll talk more about the amazing mission they have. But Rob is really great at telling the stories of pioneering people, ideas, and organizations. And at Fresh Energy, he's helping to accelerate the nation's transition to the use of clean and renewable energy. In this conversation, we're specifically talking about the role of solar in helping to solve the uh, pollinator crisis uh, within the United States. If you're not tracking the pollinator crisis, you should be because uh, the honeybees, according to Rob and some of the numbers he puts in our conversation, help bring $15 billion in economic benefits to the agricultural community. It's critical in a lot of the crops we grow. And... Bees are at a critical population junction right now because of issues around climate change and the environment and growth of suburban communities. So solar can play a key role, and we're going to talk about that today. Rob, thanks so much for joining us at Experts Only Podcast. Delighted to be with you. Thanks so much. So looking at your background, uh, you went to school in St. Paul. Did you grow up in Minnesota? I was born in Fargo. and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but grew up in Minnesota and then uh, came out to Boston uh, for a couple of years, spent a couple of years living in Germany, had a, uh, our first child over there. Um, but, uh, what are you doing over there? Um, you know, my wife helped start a, uh, an English immersion Montessori school, and uh, it was before we had kids, so we thought, if not now, when? Right. And, um, you know, it's, it's nothing like just immersing yourself in another language and another culture to really force your mind to, to make connections that it wouldn't otherwise be, be making and, uh, and really put yourself in uh, the experience of, of, uh, of just being a, a fish completely out of water. Yeah, I was, I was stationed over there in the Army for four years. So at some point, I'll, uh, we should swap Germany stories. But in, so you go from St. Paul and Fargo to Boston to Germany. You have a background in communications, right? So when you came back to the States, what were you, what were you doing then? Well, the, um, I'd spent about 15 years helping software and, uh, and kind of emerging startups go from the garage to that pre-IPO stage. Yeah. I just really get excited about entrepreneurs and the part of the hockey stick where suddenly it goes from something that's really nerdy and nobody cares about to something that's immediately relevant to you know, millions and millions of people. That's, I, I really... Uh, love that that uh, partnering with pioneers to help them tell their stories and connect with larger audiences. So when I came back from Germany, you know, the startup market was just completely dried up. There was no venture capital money and, you know, went to work with um went to lead uh, communications for an art and design firm and found or excuse me, for an art and design college and found that, you know, that that geeks have a lot in common with artists and uh, you know, so then kind of told the stories of those uh, entrepreneurs for a few years, and then um, and then was recruited uh, by uh, Michael Noble, my current boss at Fresh Energy, uh, who said, you know, helping individual companies and individual artists is interesting, but what about you know doing the same kinds of work for this uh, interest industry that is just emerging in Minnesota and the Midwest, and that's the solar energy market. Yeah, uh, 
So that's what brought you into solar. It was, it was getting sort of recruited, recruited on the communication side. Um, it was. It was, and it was a really wide open uh, opportunity where Michael said, you know, what we need is people that are you know, helping identify the problems that we're going to have in three or four or five years and making sure that we're laying a groundwork to address those problems in the most authentic and powerful way we possibly can. And, and the way that I've done communications and, and marketing and, and engagement work throughout my career is really, it's never been about putting lipstick on a pig. I, I just always have to say, you know, instead of a pig, could we just, could we just make a pony or a kitten or a puppy or something? A bee. You know? Right. <laughs> it's amazing uh, when you can start at the design stage. If you build a product that is naturally, you know, um, that naturally sells itself, you just get better results, you know, instead of trying to, you know, sell something or spin something that is, it comes off crosses inauthentic and, you know, greenwashing or, you know, there's just a lot of bad, bad PR that's unfortunately been done uh, over the, the last dozen years. Right. Right. And it obviously it, when, especially when you have kids, it's easy to drive, uh, drive yourself around a mission like, like solar. And, and we'll talk more about pollinators here in a minute, but talk for a second about, about fresh energy and, and, and your, your mission there and, you know, sort of the efforts that have sort of sprouted since you first started. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was really well-timed connecting with Michael and fresh energy because we just had our second kid and he, uh, he turns out we have, it, we, we know now that we have uh, pediatric asthma in the family. And uh, so as a, as a two week old, he turned uh, a shade of blue that, that isn't, you know, uh, compatible with um, staying alive. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so that really forced okay. us to, to really examine our, our own priorities and whether we want, you know, as a family to be, um, you know, focused on selling the next widget or if there's a, uh, mission related work where we could still, you know, make a good income and family, um, but then help transform, you know, uh, our society and our systems and our economy in ways that we'd get us better air quality and obviously a more hospitable planet. Um, fresh energy has really been an incredibly um, consistent and high performing organization over the last 25 years, uh, helping to shape and drive energy policy in a way that is both visionary and practical and is really focused on benefiting all. So, um, so the, the organization's history is really focused on uh, Minnesota. Uh, it was Michael Noble and a bunch of environmental allies that, that got NSP to compromise and say that they will build the first commercial scale uh, wind farm uh, between California and Denmark. This was back in, wow. <laughs> back in 1992, 93. And, uh, and because of that, um, you know, you, now you have Blattner and, and Mortensen and ATS. All these are Minnesota companies because they had to figure out how to build giant utility wind scale, you know, wind farms in Minnesota first. And then, you know, went on to wind projects in Texas and Iowa and then the rest of the world. Um, so it was clear it was an organization that, you know, really looked at ways to use economics to make transformational change. And that was that was an exciting thing that I just, uh, I really had to jump at. So the, the fresh energy's focus is mostly Minnesota. You guys do more national work now as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the organization's legacy has been entirely focused on, on Minnesota, but has increased uh, as, as the organization's grown from, you know, from two, three, four staff back in the nineties to now we have more than 20, 25 people. Oh, wow. Um, so we still have several staff that are focused on, energy efficiency and, 
and um, uh, electrification and beneficial, beneficial electrification, electric vehicles, et cetera, in Minnesota. And then the work I do has really expanded to, to be, uh, you know, wherever uh, solar siting and solar design issues are happening. So it's very much a national focus for, for uh, the Center for Pollinators and Energy. Yeah, so I want to come back to that in one second. But for for folks that don't that aren't aware, you know, Minnesota has been really a, a leader in in solar. When you say that to folks that don't know solar, you know, people and, and look, I'm we're doing this interview. I'm, I'm calling from Buffalo, New York, right? So we're not we're not in the tropics right now. Um, <laughs> right. You know, people are shocked to learn about sort of the leadership that Minnesota has put out there on things like community solar and implementation. You know what? What is what's driving that? I mean, other than fresh energy, of course. What what is you know the real uh, spark that's kept Minnesota driving forward here? You know, the ethos that that fresh energy has in approaching challenges is that we we never have enemies; we have opponents. Um, you know, we have folks that right. we haven't convinced of our worldview yet. So it really is an organization that executes on its mission of of practical and visionary energy policy. And, um, and that, that really, you know, manifests itself in finding uh, non-traditional allies, you know, to help uh, build as large a coalition uh, for, uh, for transformational change as possible. Um, so, you know, starting with the wind energy industry back in the 90s, that, that got Excel. I mean, Excel Energy has now made these very ambitious commitments to, uh, to be carbon neutral by 2050. And, you know, for t- more than 10 years, they've been, you know, bragging and touting the fact that they've been a national wind energy leader. And that's a result of some of this, you know, policy work that Fresh Energy and others did, you know, back in the 90s. Um, in, in 2012, Fresh Energy hadn't done any work on, on solar. Like, we really hadn't spent a dime. Wow. And, then, and then we saw the prices falling. Michael did and my, my colleagues did. And they th- saw, you know, this might just be the year. And uh, in the right time to use some of our unrestricted dollars to to really lean forward and get some pragmatic energy policy. Uh, and so that year we passed um, a solar energy standard, a one and a half percent requirement on the, the state's monopolies, as well as um, a, a, a bill that said, you know, that the, the monopoly needs to have a community solar program with the following rules. And, you know, that community solar program has now gone on to become the most successful uh, community solar program in in the country because yeah, no no regulatory cap you know the size of the program is dictated by what the substations will um, will uh, will will tolerate um, and uh, it was really those two things those the solar energy standard and the community solar program that had some of our friends and allies call us up and say what the heck are you guys doing shouldn't all this solar be on rooftops. And it happened that these were some farmers out in rural Minnesota that, you know, had these, these questions and concerns for us. And that obviously prompted a, you know, a, a pretty, <laughs> that sent a chill down my spine, frankly, because I knew if we sure. had farmers that were opposed to solar, this was going to be a lot more expensive. And, you know, we were just not going to have the kinds of, um, the kinds of change. We, were, we just weren't going to hit the, the, the vertical part of that hockey stick that, that, uh, that um, is really fun. Um, so we went about figuring out how to, how to address that problem and how we could, you know, influence solar, uh, solar farm design to really make sure that a solar farm is designed in a way to, to meaningfully benefit, uh, agriculture and, and people in rural communities. 
Yeah, interesting. So your role as the, as the director of the Center for Pollinators and Energy sort of came out of that uh, vision of saying, you know, how do we address the needs of the, for instance, the farmers? And, and then um, with that, like what, what was the pollinator solution? Like what, what was the need for pollinators that sort of brought those two design components together? Yeah, I mean, we, so we're not a we're not a pollinator advocacy organization. We're not a bird advocacy organization. We are an energy policy organization, and and so what we found was uh, in in 2014 when we started this um, this work was that uh, establishing low growing flowering meadows under and around solar farms um, is a pretty common practice in the UK, and it was actually something that was done specifically to address siting uh, siting uh, issues. And, um, and so then we, we uh, called up those folks and, you know, talked to the ecologists and talked to the solar developers and figured out how to interpret and adapt that practice and import it um, into the United States. Um, obviously, one of the first things that, that occurred to us was that, hey, if it's easy to put, uh, you know, a, a six by six pollinator garden, <laughs> you know, uh, in front yeah. of the, the front <laughs> door of a of a thousand acre solar farm, you know, then developers, some developers would, would prefer that. Um, but the reality is, is that, you know, that's kind of going back to this lipstick on a pig and, you know, it's not really providing meaningful benefits. Uh, so two big issues that, that the folks in agriculture have, and this really surprised us was that, you know, they are really struggling with, with the topic of how to address the pollinator crisis populations of these pollinators are just plummeting and add some add some color to that what what what's the crisis that that's driving this for them yeah there's the the crisis is um is that uh the obama administration calculated and published research showing that that honeybees alone contribute more than 15 billion dollars of economic productivity to the agricultural sector and that's just the honeybees right so there's there's like dozens and dozens and dozens of, of different kinds of native and wild bees. And people don't appreciate and, and, and really don't know because it's not well publicized, but every single one of those clamshells, you know, of blueberries is the result of more than 600 individual visits by bees to little flowers during a particular five-week window. And, um, you know, and, and the same is true for almonds, trillions and trillions and trillions of individual visits by bees to flowers. Um, and that, that's true for every single crop that, that, needs, uh, that needs pollination. And so there's just this huge segment of our economy, of our agricultural economy that is dependent upon these insects. And um, unfortunately, Humans are really bad at doing pollination, but we're really good at public policy. <laughs> right. So, you know, if we just create a landscape uh, that helps to keep the bees alive, then we will just naturally get those ecosystem services benefits for free. And, and for those that don't follow us as closely, like the, the, the demand of those bees is huge. The problem is the supply of them is dwindling significantly because of a variety of environmental issues where, you know, we're not seeing the, the populations uh, of bees or, or butterflies or other things that utilize pollinators um, uh, are getting squashed right now. That, yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I mean, because of some changes in the farm bill, we've lost more than 10 million acres of conservation land. 
um, because of the rapid expansion of suburbs and exurbs, you know, the, the, uh, the amount of, of land that's going into that kind of development is, is huge. So we're just losing, losing millions of acres of conservation land that should be helping sustain healthy populations of pollinators. I mean, it's, a, it's as easy as, you know, just going out for a night drive. And if you're not getting any bugs on your windscreen or on your headlights, like you, like it used to happen when we were kids, yeah, that's a sign of a, a huge, huge problem. Uh, because it, you might feel like, oh, that's convenient, but unfortunately, it's those insects that are not just pollinating the crops, but they're obviously also they're they're um, providing the uh, the food for all of the songbirds that we love and all of the heritage birds like the pheasants and the quail. Um, and so they're a valuable and critical part of that, uh, of that uh, ecosystem. Uh, and, um, you know, if, if more and more of them, of them are added to the Endangered Species Act or, or disappear, we don't just lose uh, economic opportunity, we, we incur additional costs um, you know, on ourselves. Um, and farmers are really struggling with how to deal with that. So, so we really have been partnering with them in Minnesota and more and more states to, um, to set common, flexible, science-based standards for what constitutes pollinator-friendly within the context of a solar farm. So it's, it's been exciting to see that entomologists understand that solar is bringing billions of dollars of investment and that every single one of those solar farm designs could be incrementally improved in a way that is meaningful to be beneficial to pollinators. So for those people that aren't familiar, right, when you, when, and we deal with this at Clean Capital every day, we've got, you know, solar systems, solar arrays all over the country, commercial industrial sites, obviously some are on rooftops, a lot are what is known as ground mount, where you, we literally have to go in and mow the lawn regularly throughout the year. It's incredibly expensive for a series of reasons. Uh, some of it has to do with people just expect to see they think the short lawn helps the solar, which is not the case. Uh, but what you guys have so wisely discovered is that these are phenomenal opportunities, not just for the pollinators, but for the economics around the systems themselves, because they can help lower some of those costs to do this. So you've created a really in interesting ecosystem of experts looking at this problem. You've got the National Renewable Energy Lab. You've got Argon. Um, do you talk a little bit about the Inspire initiative and you know, um, how you're seeing more and more folks sort of coming to these policies? It's been incredibly exciting to be able to collaborate with Argonne and, and NREL um, and the scientists there that are really leading up and have been leading up this effort for, for a long time. Uh, the INSPIRE project, it stands, it's an acronym, of course, it stands for uh, Innovative Site Preparation that reduces impacts on the environment or something along those lines. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's great. But it, one of the things it's really looking at is, uh, is the idea that a cooler vegetation, that thicker, thicker vegetation under and around panels can create a cooler microclimate or avoid or prevent the heat island effect in order to help uh, improve solar PV efficiency and potentially get more days of peak uh, production or incrementally, you know, more days and more time of solar energy output. So, you know, a cooler microclimate under and around solar farms 
isn't really something that you can do in the California and Arizona desert. Right. <laughs> but, but when you've got high quality black arable soils, what an awesome opportunity to design a high performance seed mix that allows you to maximize your generation throughout, you know, the sunniest times of the year. Exciting. And so both of these, uh, we were talking offline before a little bit about some of the work that Argon has put into looking at the economic benefits that these bring both to the systems, right? Where, you know, you have tens of thousands, if not some cases, a hundred thousand dollars plus going annually into uh, just mowing the, the lawn under the system, but also to the community around it. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then, if, and, you know, it sounds like this is spun into work being done at Yale to better understand the long-term benefits of some of that data. Yeah, it's, it's, the uh, the number of kind of ways that the, a system like this, a vegetative system, a high performance vegetation mix under and around solar farms, can provide exciting value, and it's not clearly it's not just for you know wildlife, or it's not just for managed honeybees, it's not just for the potentially for the crop benefits that could be around, but if if you're if you're an engineer that's interested in peak performance then you should really train yourself up on how the, the performance of the vegetation under and around the panels can positively influence the engineering of the panels themselves. So, for example, if you, if you put an extra 12 inches of steel and move the panels about a foot higher, that's going to cost you somewhere between $2,500 and $3,500 per foot per megawatt at today's prices. However, when you do that, then for the life of the solar project, you're suddenly allowing the mowers to drive two to five to you know, 10, uh, significantly faster, I guess. So one, you're reducing the mower solar collisions. You're reducing the frequency that you have to mow. You're providing the vegetation company with a more diverse, uh, allowing them to choose a more diverse seed mix that grows a little bit higher uh, because the, the lower stuff is, is pretty cheap. Um, you're allowing a selection of a high performance seed mix that has really deep root systems to better withstand downpours as well as droughts because those deep root systems are adding soil moisture, adding organic matter to the soil. And then the plants are able to stay alive throughout the drought season um, because they've got increased soil moisture, um, uh, you know, be, because uh, you're, you're not selecting a turf grass mix Right. Which has like six inch deep roots. So, you know, so this idea of designing a system, it's, it's all about low cost, low cost, low cost upfront is really resulting in high cost, high cost, high cost for the life of the project. You know, it's not, it's not too unlike, uh, you know, just building a home that's cheap, but not insulating it in Minnesota or in Buffalo. You know, it's like, oh, I got a great deal on a house. I only spent $10,000. It only cost me, uh, you know, eight thousand dollars a month in my energy oh my. bill. <laughs> right. right. No, that's a great way of putting it. And, and it's not just for new build opportunities, but you know, we're we Clean Capital um, have been looking at how to retrofit our systems with this, and it's a little bit of a different approach. But in the push comes to shove, it's a lot of the same economics and, and the benefits. So, Rob, and, talk for a second. You know, I know you guys are putting on an event at Yale coming up April 1st. Um, I think you're calling it ag agrivoltaics. Talk for a second about what, what's expected to happen at an event and some of the folks you intend to be there. 
Yeah, it's going to be a fantastic evening. We've just got a beautiful room in the Burke Auditorium and space for around 150. And um, we've got uh, uh, Cliff Bar and NG and uh, Jordan Macknick from NREL and myself, and then a number of kind of tabling partners, uh, including the American Solar Grazing Association and the uh, Electric Power Resource Institute uh, and, and uh, Ernst uh, Pollinator Services that establishes these landscapes. So it's going to be a great event. We're going to be talking about how to maximize agricultural productivity through co-location of uh, different uh, agricultural interests and pollinator-friendly solar. So one of the research projects that, that was built on some work that Argonne did uh, and done by these four graduate students at the Yale School of Environmental Studies is actually looking at uh, a given amount of land and said, you know, found that it, it was a really non-intuitive uh, insight, but they realized that that if you take a given amount of land and, and you, you're already harvesting some crop from that, if you take some of that land, quote unquote, out of production and put in a solar farm and then plant pollinator dependent crops or have the farmer or encourage the farmer to plant pollinator dependent crops around the solar farm, then you're actually increasing the net agricultural yield of that parcel compared to the same site without the solar pollinator landscape. So it's a, it's a really interesting way that, I mean, we see a lot of conflict right now, in, in particularly in kind of farmland constrained states like Connecticut and Massachusetts. Uh, you know, out here in the Midwest, we've got, you know, 27 million acres of Minnesota and, and Illinois has got 20 million acres, but, uh, but Massachusetts, they only have, you know, 500,000 acres. So there, there's more conflict uh, between um, the productive use of farmland and solar development. But what we're seeing is that actually solar farm design uh, can meaningfully increase the productive use of all of the adjacent farmland. And it's obviously not just the pollinator benefits, but one of the big challenges in agriculture that is even, I guess, you know, nerdier and, and less sexy than, than insects and climate change is topsoil loss. And it's, it's just not well publicized, but the reality is, is that throughout the Midwest and the Northeast, uh, current row crops are losing topsoil at a rate of two to five tons per acre per year. And that's just due to wind and water erosion, two to five tons per acre per year of topsoil loss. And as a solution, of course, is very simple. It's just perennial vegetation, but who's going to, you know, take a, a crop out of production and put in perennial vegetation, who's going to pay for that? Exactly. You know, a farmer needs the money. Um, and uh, a, a pollinator-friendly solar farm is a great way to help kind of create a legacy for the next generation of farmers, where you might even, you know, think, oh, well, I'm going to have a rotational solar farm. You know, I'll have the solar farm here for 20 years or 40 years, and then I'll move it to my less you know, to my, to, you know, to the next land uh, after that, because the, the soil is going to rest and rebuild and, and really be, you know, certifiably organic, high quality soil uh, at the end of that solar lease. Rob, this is fascinating. I think it's important for folks to recognize that this is not just a boutique thing. You've got big firms like Cypress Creek, uh, doing really innovative stuff here. Obviously, Clean Capital is taking, trying to take a leadership role and get engaged. Uh, our investment partners at BlackRock are, are 
uh, helping us prioritize this within our our own efforts. There are there's serious commitment to this, uh, both because of the ecological, but also the economic benefits that this can drive. So if, if you're a solo developer or you're a long-term owner, you know, how do you get involved? How do you learn more about how you can implement these programs? So we've got, uh, um, we have a webinar. We have, <laughs> I should say, on our website, I'll give a shortcut, which is just beeslovesolar.org. Uh, we've recorded more than six or eight hours of webinars, including with the U.S. Department of Interior, U.S. Department of Energy, uh, the North Carolina Clean Energy Tech Center, uh, the, the International Association of Sustainability Professionals. So there's uh, an abundance of material and resources out there. Um, and the key is, is that uh, we have collaborated across the country with, with the nation's foremost entomologists and experts. And so you as a solar company, you know, for your audience, they do not want to be in the position of trying to tell consumers what's good for pollinators. You know, right. solar, solar development firms know what's good for solar and that's where they should stay, which is great. But we at Fresh Energy have, have collaborated with these entomologists and gotten them to sign off on these scorecards. It's a really simple one-page tool that helps your uh, vegetation managers design seed mixes so that you can say, you can stand shoulder to shoulder with these, you know, these highly influential entomologists and say, hey, the entomologists say that our entire solar project is beneficial to pollinators because we're doing these one, two, three, four, five things. So, um, so, so it's a flexible and fair tool that allows you to maximize the public uh, benefits and um, as well as obviously get all of these operational benefits related to stormwater and and uh, and pollinator benefits and and soil retention and everything else. Yeah, amazing. So beeslovesolar.org. Uh, first of all, it's amazing that was available. It's a great find. And <laughs> I'll tell people if you if you Google Rob and, and this, you'll you'll find a great TED talk he does uh, in Minnesota to to keep you motivated. Um, you know, this is a an issue obviously near and dear to my heart, but also something that's critical for uh, not just the industry, but I think we as a uh, as a nation need to help drive forward. So Rob, thank you for your leadership on it. One, one final question I ask all of my, um, uh, the folks that join me here at experts only, if you could go back to visit yourself in St. Paul, when you're graduating from, from college or, or even from high school and, and could sit down and grab coffee, what, what advice would you give yourself? Oh, wow. That's a, that's, that's really fun. I, I would say, um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would say go to, maybe go to New York instead of Boston. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was great, but this is this is an exciting time in this work because it's uh it's clear to me. Uh, I mean, I've been in uh I've I've been in the wireless industry, I've been in the open source industry, I've been in the database cloud computing industry, but it's clear to me that in 3 years time, solar pollinator for anything on arable farmland is going to be the default. And so the, the companies that are moving now are getting a huge competitive advantage because they're getting projects in the ground, they're learning from them, and they're hiring staff that are helping them figure this stuff out. So if there's solar companies out there that haven't yet you know, hired people, hired an intern, hired a, a graduate student from the Yale School uh, to help them address these questions, uh, they should get on that. You know, um, uh, Excel Energy, we were delighted to partner with them just last fall, and they said, hey, for all of our solar RFPs, we're going to include, we're going to require all of those bids to include a copy wow. 
of the pollinator friendly solar scorecard. And, you know, there's a, they're a hugely influential, you know, thought leader in terms of where you utilities are going. Um, and so it's great to partner with them, um, but also with companies like NG and Eden Renewables and, uh, and IPS Solar and US Solar, and really companies that are leaning forward and saying, hey, we're just going to do this everywhere. You know, and uh, if we have to, then, you know, if we find a landscape where this can't work, then that'll be the exception. But we're going to make solar pollinator the default uh, because that'll help us win more projects. It'll help us learn faster and it'll make us a better com- uh, competitor into uh, into the future. Outstanding, Rob. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you. Thank you so much. You can learn more by going to beeslovesolar.org and, and learn ways to get involved. And as always, you can grab more episodes of Clean Capital at of Experts Only at Clean Capital's website, cleancapital.com. Uh, you know, always looking for advice on folks we should be interviewing. And we'd like to thank our producers, Lauren Glickman, and our, our intern, Darnell Lubin, for helping to put the, these episodes together. As always, I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.